Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire today. Sarah is the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And today we're going to look at how Indiana is serving tens of thousands of Hoosiers with developmental disabilities. Uh, joining us in the studio are Fern Bonchek, who's the director of PALS, a therapeutic writing program for children and adults with disabilities. Leslie Green, the executive director of Stone Belt Arc, and Dr. Erna Allant, Professor and Odding Chair of the Special Education Department in the IU School of Education. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition, and join the discussion there as well. well. Thank you all for being here. Sarah, thanks for pinch hitting it the last one. Oh, minute. no, this is a pleasure. Thanks, Bob. All right. And I, I should mention, you know, Fern and I were talking. Uh, Fern Bonchek is the daughter of Rock Bonchek, who was a guest last week on the program. So it's all in the family. <laughs> thanks, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I'm going to turn to Leslie first because I think, you know, this is a time that the governor gave his state of the state address last week. And I think it's, uh, you know, you're very plugged into statewide issues. and just wanted to ask you first and then get the other guests to comment about uh, the state of the state of Indiana for people who have developmental disabilities. Well, it is a, um, a time of uh, anticipation and anxiety as the um, legislative session starts in Indianapolis. Uh, many of the services and supports that people with develop- developmental disabilities get in Indiana are coming from state funding, so there's a lot at stake. And in this economic time that we've been in and hopefully we're coming out of, um, you know, there have been significant cuts to the funding sources. Um, I'm I'm happy to say that we've been able to survive some of those cuts and and make some changes and uh, lessen the impact on uh, the people that we support. But we're coming sort of toward the end of being able to do much more of that. So we're hoping that this legislative session will not bring – significant amount of cuts or any cuts. Uh, The good thing to know is that disability issues are nonpartisan. And in this day and age where we hear so much talk about the partisan issue, uh, partisan uh, kinds of conflict, you don't seem to see that, especially at the state level, um, for our our issues that we're we're concerned with. Um, Speaker Bosma is very, very tuned in and, and key in terms of supporting issues for people with disabilities, and then there's champions that we have from our local folks, such as uh, Peggy Welch and Vice Simpson and Matt Pierce are all very good with, with our issues. So it becomes more an issue of what is what is available for funding than it is, does become an issue of we don't want to fund this or we don't want to fund that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's We have to figure out what we can do. As we head into this session, is there one major area of concern for you? Well, it's the budget. You know, mm-hmm. the, it's the it's the overall funding. Uh, there's some other little side issues that are going on there, but uh, this is the budget writing session, and and that's where all of the all of the work is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I want to uh, well ask either one of you if you have any comments, uh, Dr. Alant. First, uh, you know, you've been here for mm-hmm. a little more about two years. I mean, what what would you say is the state of the state of Indiana for? Well, first of all. You know, being here for two years, I think what amazed me was the attention and the and the possibilities that people with disabilities do have in this country. Obviously, coming from where I'm coming from, which was South Africa, um, I think it's always a very gratifying experience to be able to come to the States, and particularly to a place like Indiana, which have places like Stone Belt for adults with, dis- with developmental disabilities and and therapeutic opportunities like that PALS can offer. Um, Regardless of the funding, however, you know, I think that very often one looks at provision of services for people with disabilities by focusing on what funding is available. But I think what's equally important is that we really look at what resources we have to help people to facilitate 
um, the kind of situation we're in at the moment. You know, how creative are we in problem solving and looking at strategies for incorporating people with disabilities within the community, pulling resources in order to allow us to continue what we want to do, um, you know, in spite of the budget cuts. So I think, I think it's, whilst the cuts are always painful, uh, it does create opportunities for us to re-look and see, you know, how do we collaborate closely mm. or how do we develop new strategies between, you know, IU, Stonebelt or whatever the agencies might be. Fern, how have you had to do that? Um, <clears throat> I know that um, for PALS, we've had to partner more with other local organizations such as Stonebelt or Options um, and kind of provide joint scholarships so people could continue writing because with the budget cuts, um, we had a lot of writers who were unable to continue writing um, unless we could provide funding for them. So um, it was difficult, but I think that all the organizations here in Bloomington are very committed to, um, you know, keeping, um, helping people with disabilities have the most meaningful life and continue to providing those services, even though um, the budgets on the state level and federal level, mm-hmm. level are being cut. Now you represent a, a very specific area of providing services for, for people with developmental disabilities. So, you know, and, and our other two panelists have maybe a, a broader um, view or have a, a wider palette of things they're involved with. But so I want you to uh, sort of describe PALS, you know, and the, the benefits it brings to young people. And, you know, when you talk about how well some of our writers couldn't write anymore, I mean, what's that mean to an individual who was in your program? Um, well, we, PALS stands for People and Animal Learning Services, and um, it is a nonprofit um, equine assisted activities program here in Bloomington. Um, we mainly provide um, therapeutic horseback riding services to children and adults with disabilities. We serve individuals age four and up, um, all the way up into the 60s or 70s. Um, and we serve people with physical, cognitive, emotional disabilities, and at-risk youth. Um, we average about 65 riders a week. Um, and we um, have a lot of volunteers that help us provide the services. We average about 150 volunteers a week. Um, for our riders, the benefits that they receive from their time at PALS is tremendous. I mean, we've had riders speak their first words on the horse. Um, we've had riders benefit tremendously balance-wise. Um, just the, the simple motion, movement of the horse can stimulate muscles and improve balance and coordination and function. Um, I think the biggest thing that it does is it is a um, really meaningful activity that people with disabilities, no matter what their disability is, can participate in. And it's a very normal activity. Um, and so that increases self-esteem um, tremendously, and that's the biggest um, impact that we have seen on our riders is self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some riders that coming to PALS one day a week for their weekly lesson is literally the only activity that gets them out of the wheelchair on a weekly basis. And so they get out of a wheelchair and they get on top of a horse and they're able to ride it around. And if you can envision sitting in a chair all day long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, pretty much. And then for an hour a day, you are above everyone else around you riding a horse. That's tremendous. With your program, and I'm wondering with some other programs statewide, are we sort of at a point where we're not looking, though, to expand those programs and we're just sort of at a maintenance level in terms of in terms of funding? Yeah, that's that's pretty much the case. Um, we do have a few services that are expanding. We're starting. We're still taking in quite a number of of new uh, clients, but a lot of it is trying to just hold steady and and ride through this time till we can get to a place where where things start to to feel a little better. The program that we are seeing a lot of folks uh, still participate in and and come new to is our milestones program which is clinical services we have psychiatric counseling behavioral supports Uh, so sort of the mental health side of things and we found that a lot of of children and adults with developmental disabilities or children with autism or children with emotional uh, concerns 
are making good use of that that program and it's it's sort of a se- separate way of paying for that so it doesn't it's not bound up in some of the the um, restricted funds <clears throat> all right our phone numbers are eight five five zero eight one 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 eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Our website wfiu dot org slash noon edition. We're talking about how the, the state and our local area serves people who have developmental disabilities. Uh, Dr. Alant, you do a lot of work with people who have severe communication problems, and mm-hmm. um, that's you know an area that I'm not sure that people give a lot of thought to on mm-hmm. a regular basis. That if someone's not able to communicate, how do they live in society? Yes, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say people are living in a community, but it's a completely different issue, you know, whether they're part of that community. And I think that that is where communication becomes very important. I was just listening, you know, to, you know, the benefit of horse riding. Now, in, in our experience, horse riding is a phenomenally beneficial activity for people with severe communication problems. First of all, it's the relationship that you, that you're able to build and develop with an animal, and you know that closeness and that ability to interact with an animal, in you know has very beneficial um, you know effects on the ability of the person to actually develop a bond with somebody. You know, so um, the kind of therapeutic interventions generally available, I think, really can have very beneficial effects on the person as a whole, but certainly also on its on the willingness to want to communicate. Because the truth is that the less you communicate, the less you need to communicate because the more withdrawn you become. So it's really important that we look at activities and ways of involving people, not just putting them in your community, but also making sure that they can become part of the community, talk to people, get engaged. And it doesn't mean that they need to talk. There are many ways of getting engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, nonverbal ways that people can communicate uh, if people allow them to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the important issue. Leslie, how uh, can you respond to that? I mean, with the, the clients and the, the the people that you work with at uh, Stoneville. Well, what we find is that people do as. As uh, she said, there all the people do communicate in other ways than than non than verbal ways. There are many nonverbal ways that people communicate, and if we don't give them appropriate channels and ways of understanding those communications, what we'll often see is um, some sort of behavioral response that may not be that beneficial to that person or to others around them. So having a way for, for someone to express themselves is just a basic human need. It's, it's as basic as anything else we do is that, that form of expression. So being able to have people be able to, to do that or to have folks around them that understand what their certain actions and those kinds of things are communicating is very important. And we spend a lot of time um, educating our staff about that, but also helping family members and community members and coworkers and other people uh, understand how to communicate with an individual, giving them uh, some insights into that. Um, how do you draw people out? If, if, as you said, the less people communicate, sometimes the more reserved or, or withdrawn they become. I mean, what is a strategy for doing that? What are effective programs that you've seen? Mm. Look, obviously, the various programs, but also it depends on an individual. I think rule of thumb, if you don't try to communicate with people, you could never get there, you know. And one does make mistakes sometimes. I, um, uh, but I think that we, we make mistakes in other contexts uh, and we learn from them. And I think the most important principle for me is, you know, if there's a person with a disability to engage. And part of that is to not talk too much but give people an opportunity to talk. It does slow down your pace. Uh, but... That's actually very beneficial because, you know, s- slowing down very often gives you an opportunity to really look at somebody. And a lot of the meanings could be, you know, that they, they try and con- to convey could be nonverbal. But having said that, you know, there's no question about it that if a person cannot speak, it's more challenging to interact with that person. Um, I don't know, perhaps I can just give an anecdote. The other day I arrived at home and I saw my husband was rather upset and... I asked him what happened, and it was a Thursday, and we're part of a project in a community where 
in fact, somebody from Stonebelt come around to to fetch food pa- food parcels. And he arrived at the door, and my husband realized we forgot to put out the food parcel. And so he opened the door. And what happened is he startled this young man. And he felt so guilty. And I said to him, you know what? That's a very important you know, event in terms of what happened. First of all, it's something that, that one doesn't know if you're not exposed to it. But the wonderful thing about that is now... We wait, and before we, when we see they arrive, we make sure if we want to say hi that we get out of the door earlier so that we don't startle anybody. And I think, you know, we should allow people to also learn, and we can't learn if we don't interact. So, mm-hmm. And that's really the message I would like to give people is, you know, knowing some baseline rules like slow down, you know, don't talk for people, give them opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Leslie, do you want to talk a little bit about that program? That's a helping hand program, correct? It's called Hand in Hand. Hand in Hand. And okay. uh, we have several individuals that we support that go throughout the community and for in, for uh, neighbors who have agreed to put food out on a regular schedule. Um, these individuals that we're helping go pick that food up, and they have regular routes each day, and then they take that route, that food, to the community kitchen, and then it's used in, in their their food programs. It's been a wonderful program. It was started by a family member who wanted uh, Carol Ann and Don Hostler, whose whose son was graduating from high school, and they wanted something meaningful for him to participate in. And they came up with this idea. And now it's expanded to about ten or twelve of our of our clients and about one hundred and fifty uh, uh, community members that are that are participating. Yeah, you know, we we were on that route before we moved, and I remember having, I think it was Jonathan, mm-hmm. having, startling Jonathan a couple of times myself. And it, was, <laughs> it is a very, you know, it's a distressing but, feeling. But so, that's right? a learning experience yeah. for both parties, obviously. <laughs> right. yeah. um, but that's something that, you know, that Jonathan might need to learn how to anticipate and to, to be prepared for. And I'm sure that his staff were very supportive of him in that regard. This is something that I was thinking while, while you were talking, Dr. Lant. It's just I think so often we do really want to have conversations with people who, who may have any form of disability, but it's sort of almost this white elephant. At least I feel that way. And it is. How do you, how do you even start that conversation? And I'm sure it varies, but any of you, if you can, can talk about that. You know, we often feel so pressed to communicate, to say things. And I think we often underestimate, you know, the value of just being there, of just non-verbally smiling, you know, um, taking somebody's hand, say, come, I want to show you something, if there's something to show that you think you might be interested in. The truth is it does not have to be that academic or such a major decision to take. It's, about, it's a matter of being receptive to somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really important because we tend to want to impose our definition of what is communication very often onto other people. And, you know, the truth is um, diversity is the spice of life. If we can just open ourselves to how do I go about drawing this person out rather than hey, I'm talking to you, you have to talk back. I think it, it changes our attitude, and I think that's perhaps the most important hint or perhaps the most important issue to remember when one encounters somebody. And this is be natural. Let things come. Um, and don't, don't expect things to be happening uh, the same as, you know, in other situations. And perhaps you, you know, with a horse riding, I think, could talk a lot about that because I think this is really one of the benefits of being on an animal. Yeah, I mean, like um, communication with our riders and people with disabilities when we do our volunteer trainings, for example, we tell our volunteers to, when they communicate with the individuals who ride up house, to just try to communicate with them as if you would communicate with anyone else. Um, And you know, you can start out that way and then you can alter it depending on what um, type of results you get. But it's really important to try to um, treat them as if you would treat anyone else 
and to be really age appropriate. If it's a adult, treat, talk to them as if you would kind of communicate to an adult without a disability of, of that age. Or if it's a kid, um, to communicate kind of as an age appropriate level. So we tell our volunteers to do that. Um, I mean, communication-wise, just riding a horse. I mean, our instructors are wonderful. They, um, you know, they really alter kind of each lesson to fit the needs of the individual riders and what types of communication strategies they're working on. Um, The thing about riding the horse is it's just such an amazing, fun activity. And um, we were talking about there's so many different levels to communication. There's nonverbal, there's eye contact, there's, and the horse is truly magical for that because horses are totally unconditional, like being, they have no preconceived notions of the individual riding them and that they are, they have a disability and maybe they can't talk or whatever, but the horse is so receptive to all those different levels of communication. Um, And so even startling an individual, you know, you can use a horse and them riding a horse and them learning how to communicate with a horse um, on that level because they could a rider could easily startle a horse if they were to act too 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 fast or to move their hand too fast, and so um, the horse could be used on that that level. Okay, we're going to try to slide in a phone call before we go to the break. Naomi's on the phone; she's been patient. Naomi. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, I have a daughter with developmental disability, and she's 14. She actually goes to PALS as well as receives music therapy. And the reason I'm calling is to share a little bit of our experience and point to a gap in communication between would-be providers and clients like my daughter. Um, She was first identified with a disability back in kindergarten in 2001 in uh, Lafayette, Indiana, and then we moved to uh, Bloomington in 2003, so she would have been in um, fourth grade, I believe, at the time, maybe third. I'm sorry, I can't remember, but in any case, it's been quite a while. We've lived in Bloomington since 2003, and it wasn't until about a year and a half ago when I happened to go to a transitional fair because I started thinking about her future that I found out about uh, applying for a Medicaid waiver and having her be... um, have lots of these services available to her that are available to people with developmental disabilities. And my question, my concern is, why did I have to wait all these years? And why didn't anyone at any of these school systems explain to me the benefits that are available to my daughter? And if I hadn't gone to that fair, I, she still wouldn't be on the, on the waiting list, which, by the way, is a nine-year waiting list. And so I pay out of pocket now for everything, and it's just been quite disheartening that um, I was never uh, assisted. Leslie, you want to respond well, to that? Well, I don't know what happened in your particular <clears throat> circumstance. I do know that there has been a gap there. Um, children that are in the First Steps program, for example, are often told about the the Medicaid waiver waiting list. And the Medicaid waiver, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a fund a way for funding supports and services. Um, so I don't know if your daughter was able to participate in First Steps and knew anything about that. Uh, what I can tell you is since the time that you moved to this community, um, or since you found out about um, the waiting list, is the Arc of Indiana has started a new program of network uh, outreach people. And each community within Indiana has someone who's working with families and trying to get out there and educate families about what's going on and how they can get involved and how they can get their, their son or daughter on the, on the waiting list. Now, I'm not saying that that's a panacea and that solves everything, because I think you're right. It does. Everyone in, who's providing any level of service should be um, someone that's helping educate folks for that. So I'm not sure where the, where the fallback or the downfall was in your particular case. But well, we are trying to put. In, sorry, oh, we're, was, in the school system because the teachers and the staff at the schools who deal with her every day somehow they should. I mean, it becomes obvious to them that this is a child that would qualify for services, and right. why wouldn't they 
inform us of the possibilities. Well, I, and you know, I, when I, someone has a, a child with a development disability, it's usually a first time and an only time. It's not right. like, and I, I can't talk to my neighbors about it. They don't know. And I just was completely ignorant. And I didn't even know that I could find out. Right, you so, don't. You can't know what you don't know, right? So right. I'm not sure where the where the the breakdown was in your part. I, I would say that you're probably right that there's not a real systematic uh, communication approach for that. Leslie, if a if a parent moved to the community and had a child with a de- developmental disability, uh, you would have services at Stonebell or or someone who could talk with that person about. We would have. There might be some services that they would uh, want to participate in. We don't have as much core services for that that age group as, as some, uh, let's say, for school system. Uh, but we would be able to provide you information on how to get in contact with state officials and how to get yourself on to uh, the appropriate waiting list and, and that kind of thing. Uh, just You mentioned the, the waiting list, and I did want to point out that that's one of uh, Indiana's issues right now, is that we have about 22,000 people who are on the waiting list to receive services across the state. So there's a there's a huge need out there that's that's not being met right now, and unfortunately, in this particular time, um, economic time, we're not seeing as much movement on that waiting list as as we ideally would like to see. So we'll talk about that waiting list a bit after we uh, take a break. We've hit uh, halftime of the program. You're listening to Noon Edition as we talk about issues involving people with developmental disabilities in Indiana. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcast directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, The Ether Game, Musical Mini Quiz, as well as Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 11.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about issues involving Hoosiers with developmental disabilities. Joining us in the studio today are three guests, Vern Bonchek, Director of PALS, a therapeutic writing program for children and adults with disabilities, Leslie Green, the Executive Director of Stonebelt, and Dr. Erna Alant, Professor and Otting Chair of the Special Education Department in the IU School of Education. You can join us by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And just before the break, we, were, we heard this number, 22,000 people waiting to get services. How, how does it get to that point? Well, uh, just it's a matter of, of resources. Um, there's just not enough resource out there to, to reach all those people. Funding. And, Funding. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, what does that mean, though, when we hear that number, to, waiting to get services? I mean, are, what are they getting? What are they not getting? Well, so I don't, and I don't know the breakdown. Some of those are children who are getting public school services, but they're not getting any kinds of other family support um, to speak of. Uh, some of that is people who are adults who live with family members. Um, we have established in Indiana some priority waivers. For people who are living with family members over the age of 80, if you can imagine that, um, we've tried to make them a priority for receiving services. But uh, there's a lot of, of need out there that's just not being met at this point. This nine-year waiting list, too. I can't let that go without having you comment on that. A nine-year nine if, – so if, if a child went, into a, went on the waiting list today at age nine, would be the child would be 18 years old before – he or she could get services? Right. And that's an estimate. You know, there's depending on what kind of funding is out there and how quickly people are being able to move into the, you know, off the waiting list, that, that could change. And uh, I know, do know that families have, have been waiting that long or sometimes longer. 
So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems kind of. And I know that uh, the Herald Times had done a, a piece yeah. on that, so mm-hmm. that would be a, a good reference point for people to to go back and look at that. Thanks that for article. the plug. All right, appreciate it. <laughs> Fern, what's your waiting list for pals? Do you, are you able to serve everybody that, that you want um, to serve? We um, we go on a session to session basis, and um, we generally average about a waiting list of um, fifteen to twenty riders. Um, most of our riders honestly continue like for years and years and years with the program and so it is hard to get um, riders off that waiting list um, into programs Um, Mm -hmm. and and Dr. Alon you've been nodding your head throughout this but I'm wondering as your role as as a professor what what do you tell students about this sort of thing how is this not just incredibly discouraging about what you're going to be able to do you know I suppose what I was thinking was really about the ethical issue of how does one cope with a child of nine years who requires services and then lives with a and then live with a concept that that student can get services nine years down the line. I think I think that's very difficult for anybody to justify. Um, so I, I think that you know one of the most important things is for parents to realize that that's not good enough. You know, um, doesn't matter how, how you look at this. And then the question becomes, you know, what is doable? But in a way, my feeling is that if, if we have these restrictions and if we have these limitations, then how do we go about, you know, in innovative and creative ways to actually deal with this? Are there ways in which we can, uh, even if we just for interim period or transitional period, uh, provide some if if it's not the ideal service, but but really try and see with with um, you know what ways can we develop. But it's for me unacceptable that a child of nine waits nine years, you know, to get services. I mean, I think one thing is is that the I mean, a child who's nine who's waiting nine years to get services. I mean, the family is still providing services to them. It's just coming a lot of times out of pocket, right? They're paying for it out of pocket. They're not getting financial Mm. if they're able to. And so they're not getting financial support from from state funding to be able to access things like participating in PALS or specific therapies that they need. So lots of that falls on different nonprofit organizations and fundraising efforts and community events and mm-hmm. for all those organizations to kind of fill in that gap. Yeah. I will say that um, the Arc of Indiana, which is our statewide advocacy organization, has looked at this issue. Um, there are so many people that are waiting for services and the likelihood that the state's going to ever have enough funding to provide all, all that's, that's uh, needed for those individuals. As there's kind of quite, quite daunting. So the Arc of Indiana has developed what we call the Pathways to Empowerment campaign. And we're really trying to look at different ways to do things, just like Arna said. We're trying to figure out, are there different methods we could use? Are there different kinds of support we could provide? Are there different ways of spending the resources that are out there? that would make more sense and that could meet greater needs at a greater level than they are. So uh, we've brought in some folks to um, from all around the country to talk about that and to come up with ideas. And let me just say that we're going to be having a family forum or uh, family and uh, individual forum on um, March the 10th that will ha- – enable families and, and individuals with disabilities to come out and provide some input into that. So that's going to be at Ivy Tech on March the 10th, uh, which beginning at 630. We're just okay. now finalizing that, but uh, there's a place for, for people to come out and, and discuss these issues. I think uh, Fern's comments brings up an issue that dovetails with a lot of your research because you talk about the severe communication problem problems, but also within the poverty context. So mm-hmm. how does, you know, the, the notion that some people are going to be able to provide services for their kids, but if people are in poverty, they're not. I mean, how does that sort of shape this discussion? Look, I think this is clearly what worries me, because I think the people most vulnerable in the community are always the ones with the least resources. And um, I just want to make another point, And this is that simply because services are available doesn't mean everybody needs them. 
And I think this is the other thing that struck me when I arrived. You know, um, the mere fact that those services are available doesn't mean that everybody necessarily has to stand in line for it. And I think we also perhaps need to rethink, um, you know, the way we think about services. Uh, and, you know, I, I look at the schools and I sometimes, you know, um, get to the school system and I see kind of supports that students have because they're eligible for it. And I'm thinking, does that make, you know, really financial sense? Is that really a priority type of service for that individual at that point? So I really think one can, when one starts looking creatively at these issues, um, also perhaps bring in a bit of sensitivity into the whole issue of simply because their services, you know, does not exclude us from having to think about but what is the priority type of support this person needs. And so mm-hmm. I look at the 22,000 on the waiting list and I'm saying, you know, let's, let's look at this and prioritize and see how we problem solve. Uh, because what people need or what they think they need and what their problems are very often are not necessarily directly linked because people hear about a service and then respond to the service rather than saying, hey, but what really is it that my child needs or, you know, that is a priority at this mm-hmm. point? All right. Our phone numbers are 855-0811-877-285-9348 and the website wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, Leslie, over time, you know, what are the issues that you have seen sort of come and go at at Stonebelt? I mean, you've um, you know, you're you're a veteran. You've been a director for a, a few years. Yeah, just a few. Uh, I mean, are there are there things that you find are more important now in these areas that perhaps they were five years ago? Well, I've, one of the areas that we're starting to talk a lot more about, and this is part of the Pathways to Empowerment campaign, too, came out very loud and clear that employment and helping people um, achieve a higher level of self-sufficiency, a higher level of social um, capital, if you will, is extremely important. So we want to put a lot of emphasis on that. Now, um, you know, that starts when the when the student is is still in school and we should be having a a rich vocational curriculum that's helping um, kids with disabilities get out and explore their career options and get out and have um, career experiences and training and internships and all of that. And I think in in Monroe County that's been a a very much important feature of our our, uh, educational system. We need to be doing that everywhere in Indiana and across the United States is to help people get employment. This, To me, that's the single best way for people to have control in their lives. If you're making your own money uh, it's, and to have social mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. and to have a sense of empowerment that comes with that. And that kind of employment can apply to a lot of folks. It's, you know, it's not just folks that, that have high skills. We've Through our supported employment efforts, we've found some very creative ways for people with more significant challenges to be able to participate in the workforce. How does that relate to the people who have severe communication problems? You know, I was, I was just listening and I was thinking, one of the things that really impressed me when I came to Bloomington was walking into um, the shops and seeing just how many of, you know, of the people who pack your bags and do small jobs, but very important ones, are actually people with disabilities. And I think that that is so crucial. Uh, we all need to have to to feel wanted, and um, it is possible for people with really restricted abilities to get some level of employment. I think the pertinent issue here is how do we educate and train employers to realise that the idea is not to expose something somebody to a job that he cannot do, but to really relook um, the kind of activities that you do within a particular context and really sass out what of these kind of activities can be done by people with different types of abilities. And I think it enriches, it enriches the workforce tremendously uh, if one can relook the way you're doing things and saying, okay, that's a 
that's the kind of job that perhaps somebody at Stonebelt could do. Um, so I, I and and that's not easy. And I'm you know having had gone through the whole process of of employing people with disabilities myself. I realize the challenges that this brings to the table. You know, you can, but but then we, we should remember that the same kind of challenges you receive, you experience with people with disabilities, you probably also experience with people without them. And I think that's the important thing for me, that one just realizes that um, one tends to look at the employment of people with disabilities within the context of Oh, the problems, you know, but the truth is very often you have less hassles with those people, you know. Well, there's a lot of resources available to employers, too. There's um, there's different kinds of ways we can uh, get accommodations. There's different kinds of tax incentives. There's employment providers such as Stonebelt or Options that can work with an employer. In Bloomington and Monroe County, we're just extremely fortunate to have the kind of community that is so accepting um, but we see the same thing in other communities that we work in, too, is that we can work with that employer and help them figure it out. Do you find that a lot of people who do have disabilities do have this desire to go out in the community and work and, and I guess, lead a quote-unquote normal life? Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. I, I would say that's a, a driving need and driving want is to earn a paycheck and, and be your own person. This is less than about services then, but... But how do we as a society and say, say if we're the people who, sh- who shop at those stores, how do we get past just some of the stereotypes that, that, that people have about with, with people with disabilities? Well, um, I think first of all is exposing people. I think exposing people to people who think differently, who talk differently, communicate differently is, is the first stage. And I really do think a, a very important part of helping people to deal with this has to come from the people within the shop. You know, uh, what we have, I've had a student who actually trained um, people who work in shops to say, if a person like this works for with you, and he experiences a certain problem with communication. How do you actually go about facilitating it? I think, I think that a little bit of help can go a far way. As I said, I don't think we're talking excessive time spent, but I think that in-service trainings just to alert people to the kind of things could go could actually help. You know, very much in terms of helping and facilitating the action. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think the way that you see the coworkers interacting with that individual speaks volumes, too. Because if you come into a work environment and somebody there looks to, uh, to have a disability, but the rest of the coworkers are just incorporated and, in, you know, it's just a part of the normal flow of the day and it's not, you know, um, something that stands out to them, I think that says a lot to the, to the customer or to the, to the person who's come into that workplace about... Mm. You know what that environment is and who, how that works, and it's just part of the normal um, way of of being. And I think that's important because we all learn by modeling. Mm-hmm. Really, modeling is the most powerful way of actually facilitating interaction with people. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. With that. And I think sometimes people feel a little like we were talking earlier about starting to communicate with an individual. You're sure you're going to do something wrong, or what's the right way? Well, there really isn't a right or wrong way. It's a the the right thing to do is to get to know the individual, mm. and then you after you get to know the individual, you really won't see those differences. Exactly. I I don't mm. when I speak with my clients, I don't I don't notice that they have disabilities. I just notice that I'm talking to Mary or or Veronica or whoever. Okay, we have a phone call. Let's go to Mary Beth on the line. Mary Beth, hi. Hey, go right ahead. Thank you. I was very excited to hear the conversation sort of taking this um, turn because my comment was I was, um, I'm happy to hear you all speaking in person first terms, which is something that my organization, which is an inclusive organization, tries to do and to train our staff to do with the people with disabilities that we serve. And um, I wonder if you all might comment on person first language and maybe explain a little bit about it. 
how that can be a way that helps people to respect and communicate with people with disabilities um, in a positive way um, in the community and, and in the workplace. Leslie and I have had some conversations about this. <laughs> in fact, we had a little editorial <laughs> um, right. about that. Yeah, that is really important. That language that we use is really powerful, and, and we do a lot to try to educate our employees and 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 the community about that. The way you speak about someone, the way you um, cl- classify them, if you will, um, will either be very, very hurtful or it could be very empowering and and, um, and helpful. So we've, um, as a nation, have gotten away from the classification called mental retardation, which many people know leads to what I call the R word, and have moved towards talking about people with developmental disabilities or people with intellectual disabilities, if we have to say it at all. Um, we want to be really careful that we, that we use that person-first language, putting the person uh, terminology person with uh, person experiencing, because that's the language that we've used over the years has has really been hurtful to people. So, as an example, you it's really not a good idea to say that someone is disabled. It's a person with a disability. Yes, for example, and and journalists are particularly find this difficult because you have a word count that you try <laughs> to to uh, deal with, and saying person with a disability, person with a developmental disability, etc., is a lot more words than saying a disabled the disabled person. We try very hard. I know you, you do, um, <laughs> but I, that is it is kind of one of those places where we we see some problems. Actually, uh, the president just signed into uh, law Rosa's law which is uh, took the world's mental retardation out of a lot of federal regulations and a lot of federal legislation. So that was a very exciting thing. And it was, it was um, created because of a, a, a young girl named Rosa and her brother who felt it was not appropriate that she was referred to in the ways that she was. And he mm-hmm. took it upon himself to, to move that forward, testified. Fern, I want to ask you about uh, about Sarah's question because you you deal with a lot. You have a lot of volunteers that come mm-hmm. to PALS, and I'm sure that, and as you've already mentioned, your training program. So you must you know, a lot of people who probably come there have not worked with people with disabilities before, and have some of the you know, maybe some of the um, what anxieties about joining in with that population that that some of us might have. So, how do you deal with your new volunteers and your staff members? Well, um, you know, we just, I think the bottom line is to try to treat people with the same respect that you expect to be treated with. So, um, you know, we, when we have volunteers that go through the training, we, um, you know, we, we focus and talk about the different disabilities that we serve, but we don't spend a whole lot of time on it because we don't want people to come in and have preconceived notions of, oh, there's someone with autism and they're going to act in this way and have this behavior. And um, so, you know, we, we do talk about, um, you know, people first language and we talk about, like I go back to um, communication and just communicating with people with disabilities as you would try to communicate with anyone else and talk about being age appropriate um, and just be respectful. Um, and over time, I think that people will learn that it's not, you know, so-and-so with a disability. It's not – you don't see the disability. You just see the person that's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we only have about three minutes to go, and I want to give each an opportunity from each, from various perspectives to sort of um, sum up what, what you think, you know, is the, the main message that – people should get, both individuals and maybe on the government level, about what we need to do to enhance the lives of, of some people who are you know, on nine-year waiting lists or who um, aren't or maybe misunderstood, people who have developmental disabilities. And let's start with you. Well, I, I do think we have to look at, take a fresh look at things and, and see if there's some innovation we can have here, or even maybe going back to old-fashioned things like community supports and and having everybody be a part of the solution. Um, There may not be enough money to do everything that we'd like to have seen as paid supports, but there's a lot of friends and neighbors and coworkers out there that can make a great deal of difference in someone's life. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, I think that we need to realize that being in a community doesn't mean you're part of it. 
and uh, that we need to really critically reflect on how do we get people to be part of our communities. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that we might be able to develop much more creative and innovative ways of doing that. You've mentioned creativity several times. Could you give me, like, an example, something you might be thinking of? Well, you know, basically to... um, Instead of giving individuals individual services, try and see, you know, if we have a group and we can get a group together. Uh, They don't only have the benefit of getting to know each other, but they could also sort of, you know, get exposure to some services, even though it's not one-on-one individually. I think there are various strategies that one could (coughs) contemplate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fern? Um, I think um, for us, one, one thing that we come across a lot is that therapeutic writing is an alternative creative service and um, kind of in the the field of Medicaid waiver and other things sometimes that service gets lost Um, and uh, like where people may have access to some funding but they can't access alternative or different services because it's not on the the state's list or or whatever Mm -hmm. All right. well I think we have about run out of time so we uh, just want I just wanted to thank all of our guests today. I was checking with Sarah to see if she had anything else she wanted to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't want to do this secretively. We're very uh, transparent here in WFIU. But uh, Fern, Fern Bonchek from PALS is here with us. Thank you very much. Leslie, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And Dr. Erna Alant, thanks for being here for the first time. Thank we hope to have you back. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. For Sarah Whitmire, producer Dan Goldblatt, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.